0: Turn with me to John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, all these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world... I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may, be, they, they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the, and the glory which you give, gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known, you, known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them.
1: I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. If you weren't with us last week... We introduced Philippians as the book that we're going to be studying for a little while. Um, We read the opening verses of Philippians chapter 1, and we went back to the book of Acts and saw the introduction that Paul had to the place of Philippi. He was not planning on going there, but God led him to make a trip there. When he got there, he and Silas, who were missionaries, um, they found that there was no synagogue, and so instead they went out on um, the Sabbath to the river where the Jewish women who were there uh, prayed. There's no account that there were Jewish men praying with them there. Perhaps there were a few, but not enough uh, Jewish men, heads of households, to form a Jewish synagogue, it would seem which the required number was 10. So a relatively small Jewish presence in this place. While as they're praying, one of the ladies who was a Jewish person there um, hears the word that Paul and Silas are sharing about Jesus. She believes that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament promised. She's baptized, and she invites Paul and Silas to come back to her home and stay with her there in Philippi during their journey. Um, As they make their way down to the river where these Jewish people were meeting to pray, day after day, uh, I would assume week after week as Sabbaths roll on, there is a young girl who is annoying Paul. Um, She is annoying Paul because she continues to cry out that Paul and Silas are teaching uh, salvation, and that while that wouldn't seem to be very annoying, Paul recognizes that this is an antagonistic spirit within her. So he deals with the spirit, and it turns out this girl is a slave, and her slave masters are not very pleased that this girl, whom they had been exploiting for all kinds of fortune-telling and spiritual stuff with other people in Philippi is not doing that anymore since Paul dealt with the spirit that was within her. So they dragged Paul and Silas in a mob-type setting before the magistrates of Philippi. Philippi was not a small city. It was uh, the capital city of Macedonia in the ancient world and was still a very prominent Roman colony. So this was a very intimidating thing to have happen to you, to be drugged before the magistrates in a mob-type setting. The magistrates, hearing that Paul and Silas were preaching these strange things, talking about a god which was not an official god to be recognized in the Roman pantheon of all of their uh, mythology, uh, agreed to have them scourged. So Paul and Silas, in the presence of the mob, were stripped naked, they were tied to a post in the middle of the mob, and they were beaten with rods. Uh, We don't know how many times they were beaten, uh, but we can presume it was enough to satisfy the crowd, at which point when the mob had lost its energy and Paul and Silas had been thoroughly exhausted by the beating, uh, they were given to the jailer and told to be kept under tight security and the jailer, taking this responsibility serious, seriously, took them into what's described to us in Acts as the inner prison, meaning the more difficult, the more secure section of the prison. And as opposed to simply putting them in chains, he puts their feet into stocks, the Greek word meaning into the wood, which means he two little circles and clamped down on each leg of both men. And there they were left through the evening. And somehow, inexplicably, as all of this has carried on, as all of this has happened, as they have endured all of this, as the evening drew on into midnight, we're told that Paul and Silas began to sing hymns to God in the prison. I have often wondered what the response of the other prisoners would be to hear these two men singing these hymns in the prison. But the more I have thought about it, the more it struck me that the inner dungeon of a Roman prison was probably a place pretty despairing, pretty depressing. And I would imagine as Paul and Silas began to sing hymns, that their hymns of joy because it describes their rejoicing to God were an odd and interesting sound in the jail. And we don't know how long they sang hymns that night. But at some point during the course of their singing, there was a powerful display of God that happened. There was what's described as an earthquake, which I take to mean that the jail itself and all of its pieces began to shake. But unlike what you would expect in a normal earthquake, the pieces that specifically shook loose were the cells and the chains and the locks that were on the prisoners. So it was not merely a naturally occurring phenomenon. It was a phenomenon that occurred in a very specific way. The jailer was not lost on what had happened. He understood that what was happening was, in fact, not a normal occurrence. It wasn't a normal shaking of anything, but something very specific had happened and that the prisoners were all being set free. Doors were opening and chains were coming off. The jailer then, coming to the conclusion that this would mean the end of him, both professionally and personally, He would be marked as a jailer who had allowed all of the prisoners to escape. He would face the death penalty under Roman law. The jailer then draws his sword to end his life himself. He is taking in his own mind the honorable escape of facing what would surely uh, be a great dishonor to his post, the freeing of all these prisoners. As he draws his sword, Paul cries out, do not harm yourself, for we are all still here in our cells. I would imagine, although it's not explicitly stated, that the jailer required some sort of inspection to make sure that was still the case, but having found that Paul was actually correct and all the prisoners were accounted for, he was not only relieved but he apparently begins to interpret this great thing that God has done as a personal experience for himself, in fact, designed for himself. I'm sure Paul was being explicit in that communication. Hey, this earthquake that happened and everything that has occurred tonight has not occurred to allow me and the other prisoners to escape. What's occurred has not happened so that God can judge you as his enemy who's imprisoned his people. What's occurred is God's extension of salvation to you. And so through this great experience, Paul and Silas themselves are not saved by the miracle of God. In fact, they weren't spared one physical pain by what God did here. They already endured the beating. They already endured the punishment. We find out the next day the magistrates had already organized to let them go and send them away quietly. So they were in no danger of execution. They were, Of course, they didn't know that, but God in His sovereignty did not spare them a single bruise. At least not one that we can identify in the text. God, in fact, did this miracle not to save Paul and Silas, but to save a jailer and his family and all his household. And having uh, saved the jailer, they go back to the jailer's house where Paul and Silas have their wounds carefully dealt with. And it's interesting. We lose sight when it just says, well, they were beaten. Well, what does that mean? It's interesting. The text calls our attention to the tending of their wounds. Their flesh was broken. And cut and laid bare. The jailer now, having a certain amount of uh, gratitude for the way God has used them, tends carefully to their wounds. Their whole, his whole household believes and is baptized. And then Paul and Silas are taken back to the prison. I would assume not the inner prison, I would assume not back to the stocks, but back to the prison because when the magistrates send for them the next day, they are found in the prison. And this is when Paul, just as a note, makes reference to, we will not go away quietly since we're Roman citizens and the magistrates realize that they've endangered their own lives by mistreating Roman citizens. It was a huge offense, it was... A loss of office that was at risk for them by not realizing that Paul and Silas, at least Paul himself was a citizen of Rome. And so the magistrates actually come to the jail, to the prison, to plead with them and ask them to go away quietly, and after they go and they visit again with Lydia, the woman from the river and their house, they move on. And that is what Paul means when he writes in Philippians chapter three, or chapter one, verse three I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, from the very beginning. That was the beginning. It's a pretty remarkable beginning. It's a beginning marked by suffering. And as Paul writes them now, he is in a Roman prison in Rome. Now, whether or not he's actually in some form of prison or simply under house arrest, it would seem he's afforded some privileges to communicate, to write, to meet with people in Rome at this time, but he's still a prisoner. What would it be like for you if tomorrow you woke up and you were not allowed to go anywhere? You were not allowed to do anything. You had no freedom. You could not go work a job. You could not go freely about wherever you'd like, and you knew this was your position indefinitely until you received an audience before a Roman court. What would that be like? It's impossible, I think, for us to to imagine. Most of us, anyway, very difficult to even imagine. He writes as a a, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, but truly, as is referenced in other introductions and other letters he writes, as a prisoner of Jesus Christ as well. He's still suffering. He was suffering when he first came to Philippi, and he still suffers now. And yet the Philippians, the people there, as they had grown, as the gospel had spread, as they had faced their own conflict within the city, they had remained faithful in their fellowship and their support of Paul. All this we covered last week. Now, this morning I will not be very ambitious in terms of the ground that we'll cover. I just want to read verse 6. Verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In the context of the verse, Paul thanks God every time he thinks of the Philippians, which he does in every prayer. He makes requests for their needs with joy And his gratitude is for their fellowship in the gospel from the first day even until now. And as he makes these requests, he is confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in the Philippians will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And I want to look at this verse in three sections. The first section, just very simply, notice it is he who who has begun a good work in you, in the text. He. He is God, who's being prayed to. He chose the Philippians. God begun the work. This didn't start with the Philippians and their desperate searches to know God. This started with God choosing the Philippians. Is that in any way more apparent than the story that we read from Acts. Remember, Paul and Silas were not even going there. Philippi was not on the map for their missionary journey. It's not where they were headed. They were divinely called there. When they get there, the lady, Lydia, who's down there by the river, she hears and responds. There's no implication that everyone else heard and responded. The jailer, whom God chooses to reveal himself to in this miraculous way, there's nothing about his story that would suggest to us that he was some character soul searching out there for answers. He was just doing his job, showing little sympathy to Paul and Silas prior to the whole experience. God began the work in Philippi. Um, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I guess if I. If I had to call this sermon anything, I would call it the Ephesians sermon from Philippians. We'll only do one of them, I promise. But the Ephesians sermon from Philippians. And if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and you read beginning in verse 3, I think we'll see four different descriptions of what God does when He saves a person. Look at verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Paul, simple simple introduction. God should be praised. Blessed be God. Who has blessed us. That's the first thing that God has done. So if you're making notes in the text, the first, he, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, first thing he does, there are four things. He blessed us. Blessed It says here, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. God has blessed us, and not just with some blessings, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is no heavenly blessing, there is no heavenly spiritual blessing withheld from us because of the access to God that is granted to us by Jesus Because of what Jesus did, now what did Jesus do? Well, he was born into this world, God in the flesh. He lived a sinless life, and because Jesus, unlike you and I, was not a sinner, he was uniquely qualified to offer himself as a payment for your sin. If Jesus had been a regular guy like you and I, a sinner, Someone who lies, someone who manipulates, someone who steals, someone who is adulterous, someone who is greedy, someone who is envious, someone who is gluttonous. If Jesus had been a regular person, when he died, it couldn't have been payment for anyone else's sin. It merely would have been payment for his own. It merely would have been what was rightly coming to him. For the wages of sin is death. But Jesus lived a sinless life, uniquely qualifying himself to pay your sin debt, to pay my sin debt that I owed to God, so that now there is no sin barrier between God and myself. I am actually encouraged in the Bible to boldly approach the throne of the almighty, holy, living God, which is insane to think about, that a mere mortal who, in fact, is a sinner who has broken God's commands, would be now encouraged to boldly approach the throne of God? No, no. We have trouble boldly approaching regular authority figures in our lives. How many of you have gone and you see your boss at work all the time and it's always high and it's always by and it's and it's it's not difficult, it's not contentious, you have a good relationship with your boss. But when you get called in for a performance review, you find yourself thinking and being anxious and you're like, I don't even know why I'm feeling this way, I know that I did a good job, I know that he's not upset with me, but we have trouble even talking to authority. How many of you have ever been encouraged? Well... Just go talk to that person face to face. And you say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And then the closer that confrontation gets, the closer that moment gets, you start worrying about things left and right. We don't boldly approach hardly anything in life when it comes to an authority, when it comes to a figurehead. And I'm being encouraged to boldly approach the throne Of the almighty, holy, living God who holds my life in his hand? On what grounds can I approach God with boldness? (laughs) Through what means can I, a sinner, walk up to God? Through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus, what he did on the cross, eliminates the barrier, eliminates the obstacle, eliminates my transgression against this God. It eliminates it so fully to the extent that now I have no sin to account for. Jesus has accounted for all of it. Don't mistake me. I sin all the time, even now to my shame. The Apostle Paul's words, I am the chief of sinners. If Paul was, I can hardly say less. But legally, none of my sin is an obstacle that requires God's wrath, God's judgment anymore. Justice was served not by God inflicting judgment upon me, but by God inflicting judgment upon His perfect Son who stood in my place. So we read that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Not in Reggie. I don't deserve any of those blessings. By Jesus, He has blessed us. Second thing that he does in verse 4, he chose us in him. And then this is, you know, mind-altering in the way that requires a lot of thought and contemplation to even settle yourself on. But there is a statement of time. In other words, it's one thing to simply come to grips with the fact that God chose you. That in and of itself seems unbelievable. I am not worthy of selection. I changed schools a lot when I was a kid. I was in seven, eight different schools uh, before I was uh, 12, 13 years old. I know what it's like not to be chosen. When you're the new kid and you go to recess or they divide things up in gym class and each team gets a captain and people start choosing... Nobody chooses the new kid. I, I went a lot of times not getting chosen. And then it was with great pride when I finally played well enough that people realized, oh, he's not the new kid. He, I, he, we can choose him. He can be on my kickball team. He can be on my basketball team. I choose Reggie. Listen, God has chosen you if you are a Christian. You did not merit that selection. <laughs> he didn't choose you because it's like, Oh, you know what? There's James Rudisill. And he is such a faithful, loving, honorable man. I will reward his great faithfulness and honor. I will choose James because of how great he is. That's not what happened here. How do I know that? Because it says, God, he chose us in him. The him is Christ, again, from the previous verse. God chose us through what would be the work of Jesus Before the foundation of the world. How many good things had you done before the foundation of the world? None. (laughs) You didn't do any good. Nobody did any good things before the foundation of the world. God chose you when you existed merely as a thought in his plan for what he would create. Uh, That's not me. Telling you that. That is on the page. Thousands of years before Jesus would ever be born, God chose us through Christ before the foundations of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And this is why the in Christ matters so much, because. There is no way for me to be holy and without blame before God. There is no way for me to have a loving relationship with God unless it comes by way of what Jesus did, taking on my sin in God's judgment. So He blessed us. He chose us. Verse 5. Having predestined us to adoption as sons... By Jesus Christ to himself. He predestined us. This is the emphasis of the choosing. This is what describes, this is what clarifies that God's choosing of Brandon. That's what happens when you sit in the last row. God's choosing of Brandon was actually a destination that God had planned from the beginning. And he was aware when he chose Brandon before the foundations of the world, he was aware of just how big a screw-up Brandon was going to be. Do you know how I know that? Because it says he predestined us to adoption by Jesus Christ. Not only did he choose Brandon, he chose Brandon knowing what Brandon would do with his life apart from God. He chose Brandon knowing he would have to adopt him by the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ, to legally deal with Brandon's sin. The only way Brandon would have a place in his family when God chose him is by the death of his one and only son, Jesus Christ. He did not merely choose Brandon. He chose Brandon before the foundations of the world, knowing from the start what Brandon would be and what it would cost him, what it would cost God. He did this according to the good pleasure of His will. It pleased, this is from Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. It pleased God to send Jesus to the cross, not because He took some masochistic pleasure in brutalizing a sinless man, but because through the work of Jesus Christ, Brandon could be saved. Brandon would be adopted. Everyone in this room who is saved would be saved through that. This was the good pleasure of the will of God in whom his counsel was kept entirely within himself waiting to be revealed at the work of Jesus Christ. This is the mystery that even angels peered into that they could not understand. That's from the New Testament. You don't have nearly as much appreciation as you should, because how could we for what it means for a sinless almighty God to look at a sinful creature and say, I choose her, I choose him. And I will do what it takes to have her or him in my family. I will do what it takes to bless them. Then the, that's the third thing that he predestined us. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted. That word, made us accepted, is used only one other time in the New Testament. And it's used in a very familiar text. In Luke, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, rejoice, highly favored one. Why is the angel doing that? Because God chose Mary for something totally undeserved. That's the language here. He made us accepted. He made us highly favored. We were not highly favored. We're just sinners. And whatever you're doing with your life before you encounter the Almighty God, whatever you're doing before you surrender to the good news of Jesus Christ and what He's done, it's just a sinner's life. It's just a sinner's deal. But a sinner who has been chosen by God is highly favored. So, point number one this morning, as we consider the fact that God chose us, that God began this good work, point number one, and this may seem trite, but it is important, you are special. You are special. Never forget what makes you special. It is the choosing of God in your life. You are special. Satan forgot what made him special. In Ezekiel 28, we read about Satan before he rebelled against God and went into sin. We read about him when he was perfect. And he's described as this highly favored one who was put in the presence of God. Whose whose splendor was decided on the day he was created. It was all prepared for him. And then in Isaiah 14, we read of Satan's fall. And it comes in a series of statements. I will ascend the top i will exalt myself above the others i will be like the most high he forgot if he ever truly understood what it was that made him special it was the selection of the almighty god you were not chosen because you are special you were chosen and thus you are special The child with Down syndrome who's been chosen by God is special. The widow in Uganda whose husband died in civil war is special. The prisoner in the middle of a camp in North Korea is special. The dying person who has no family left to comfort him and who's going for chemo treatment after chemo treatment and is trying to figure out how long he wants to keep this going, is special. Now, this can be hard to come to grips with sometimes because we are broken and fallen and sinful people. And in the midst of our own sin and all of our own screw-ups and all of our failures, this is a hard reality to confront sometimes. Um, I'm sure that I'm not alone in this room when it comes to the fact that oftentimes I don't feel very special. I, I feel like all I do is mess things up and everything around me seems to fall apart. It doesn't really matter how much time I put into it or how hard I try. Things often don't work out. But it's important that we understand the rejoicing that I have in my life, should not come from all of the great things that I do. The rejoicing that I have in my life should come. The joy that I have in my life should come from knowing that God has begun this work in me. God has chosen me. God has decided, contrary to all the evidence, that I am special to Him. This is implicit in a lot of places in the Bible. Jesus to the rich man came to mind this morning as I was thinking about this. He says, go and sell all that you have, give the money to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And what he's challenging the rich man to do is the money is not what makes you special. Following me will make you special. The guy couldn't do it. He would rather have had the distinction that the money gave him he preferred the special nature of his relationship to the world that his money afforded him and he wasn't willing to part for that he wasn't willing to part with that in order to be special only in Christ you are special and not because you're a good basketball player not because you're really good at your job not because you're successful not because you have money not because you married the right person not because you have good kids you are special to the only extent that matters because God has chosen to give His only Son in order to save you and know you and to claim you as His own forever. Now, the second part of the verse, Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work in you, He who has begun a good work in you, I want to think about that for one second How did this good work start? You can turn there or not turn there. But again, this is the Ephesians sermon. I want to read to you for a minute from Ephesians chapter 2. This is verses 4 through 10. I'll be brief, but listen to this. How did this work that God is off to in your life? He chose you and then He began working. What did that look like? Ephesians 2.4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, there's two things to highlight there. Mercy and great love. Because if God is going to have a relationship with you, it's going to require both of those things. We are not nearly as lovable as we may think we are, and we require great mercy to overlook our failings. God... Not in spite of or not along with, but because of his great mercy and his great love, God made us alive. You were dead in trespasses and sins, and God brought to life. And that's what we mean in Philippians chapter 1 when we say, God, who has begun a good work in us, we were spurred to life, we were called to life. There was no spiritual life, and then God acted in our hearts and suddenly there was spiritual life. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, Ephesians 2.4, made us alive together in Christ. Now, the next portion I'm just going to read, and I'm not going to go through, but these are the blessings that we referred back to in chapter one, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Here's Here's what it says. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he may show the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you think that you can envision some retirement on this world whereby you have all the resources to just live your life however you want to live it, totally unencumbered by the cares of the world and by the resources involved, whatever it is, whatever. Whatever paradise on the earth that you are imagining does not compare to what the Christian has in Christ when they arrive before the throne of God and hear the words, well done my good and faithful servant, now enter into the joy of your master. I don't know what it looks like. For you it would be like playing around a golf every day. You know, relaxing, coming home and playing some video games, hanging out with all of the people that I enjoy spending time with. Whatever your paradise on earth looks like does not compare to what is awaiting the Christian whom God has chosen. Verse 8, For by grace you have been saved. And then the words, through faith and that not of yourselves. Now, here's, this is a clumsy analogy. Here's the clumsy analogy. I get this. Now, grace doesn't come from you. So when it says, by grace, you're sa- you were saved, it's talking about God. Now, imagine that you are drowning in the sea. And it is storming and you cannot see. You are not gently floating on top of the waves. You are clinging to something to hold on to, to keep your head above the water, gasping for air. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, somehow, impossible as it may seem, a life preserver, one of those rings, gets thrown and dropped right over you. And it's just there immediately. That's, that's what I would you know, metaphorically compare to grace here. You didn't cry out for a life preserver. You didn't know that a boat was there. You didn't know that anyone has, had identified you as a person to throw it at. You were just drowning in the sea, and bam, suddenly, there's something around you. There's something there. And as it starts to pull you towards salvation, your confidence, your hope perks up. Like, I believe I might be saved. (laughs) You have no idea how. You have very little awareness as to anything that's going on. But you know something has you and is pulling on you and you're not underneath the water anymore. And you trust this thing that has you because of what you're experiencing. So when I read this verse, if I had to put a clumsy metaphor to it, I would say, God has chosen you. God has thrown the life preserver around you. He has worked in your heart. And when you, through faith here, in quotations, when you believe in God, you are responding to what suddenly appears in your life that you did not anticipate or discover on your own. You were saved by grace through faith. And the work of God is so complete that every time you begin to doubt, well, maybe I won't get pulled in, maybe I won't get pulled in, maybe I won't get pulled in, the tug on the life preserver comes just a little stronger and you say, oh, no, I can trust this thing. Oh, no, I can trust this thing. You are not preserved by your own great faithfulness. You are preserved by the work of God in your heart. You didn't believe the gospel because you're intellectually superior to everyone else, because you're more spiritually sensitive than everyone else. You believe the gospel because God has worked in you, my friend. If you believed the gospel, if you had achieved your salvation because of your own intellectual superiority, then you would have something to brag about. If you'd worked out the way to salvation on your own because of your own great spiritual sensitivity, then you would have something to brag about. After all, you were spiritually sensitive enough to do it when the person across the street wasn't. But here it says, you've been saved by grace through faith and that is not of yourselves so that no one can boast. You don't have anything to brag about. It wasn't you. Now... We can be forgiven when we say that, hey, I've chosen to follow Jesus Christ because chronologically that's exactly what happens. That's our perception. That's what we experience. We choose to follow Jesus as long as we acknowledge He chose us first. (laughs) And apart from Him choosing us first, there is no willpower on our behalf strong enough to overcome that. He chose us first. It emphasizes it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And this is where I want to drive to and finish today. Verse 10 of Ephesians 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. We are his project. We are his craftsmanship now i enjoy seeing people's projects if i can just take a minute i enjoy looking at what people are passionate about doing you know uh Mm -hmm. natasha when nathan post the pictures on facebook of the cars he's working on i stop those are the kind i i don't stop on your political opinions on facebook i stop to look at the car that nathan is working on okay because to me that's interesting i'm not interested in cars especially the old trucks that Nathan wore. I'm not, I don't have any, any personal interest in that. I'm not passionate about it. I don't think I will ever own anything remotely like what he's after. But it's interesting to me that this is a project he's chosen. No one's forced him to work on it. No one's forced him to spend any time on this. No one's driven him to this. That's interesting to me. It's uh, Last night, Allison and I got a tour of Sarah's garden, right? And you know she's not here, so she won't be as embarrassed as she in the back. Yeah, okay. I watched her. It was the most I've ever heard Sarah talk without stopping. <laughs> it was it was interesting to me. She's chosen this. She's passionate about this. And I could say the same thing about a lot of things. Steve, I remember the first time I saw your dad's car that he'd worked on. I remember it. it I, and I'm, what in the world? It's just immaculate on the outside. I have no interest in those things. I'll never own one. Um... When Macy Manlove completed her senior project, that's the last one I thought about. that to me, she was very passionate about this, and I wanted to see the thing, didn't I, Macy? Designing an album cover, right? I want to see this. What does this look like? That is interesting to me, because even though I don't know much about these things, and I don't have much interest in these things, and they're not going to encourage me to go get involved with them at all, it's interesting to me, What we're passionate about and what we invest ourselves in and how these things that we're passionate about and invest ourselves in, they become a representation of ourselves to others. Look at what I've done. See what I mean, that's interesting to me. To see that someone would spend themselves, to whatever extent, I'm not suggesting sinfully, but to see that someone would spend themselves, their time, their energy, their labor, on a project, And so God, in Christ, has chosen to spend himself on us. We are his project. God is not in the car restoration business. He's not in the graphic design business. We are his workmanship. He is shaping and changing people. And he's changing them with a very specific design. We were created for good works In Christ, which he planned beforehand, it says. A Christian is made to do things. More specifically, the things that God has designed him or her to do. Here's the second point. If the first one was you're special, the second one is you don't need to figure out what project God wants you to do for Him. A lot of people, I've, I've, and I've wrestled with this myself, I just don't understand what God wants me to do. If He just showed me what He wants me to do, then I would do it. I just wish God, like, like that, what they really want is a project assignment from God so that then they can go and go conquer it. You are the project, you are His craftsmanship. In the end, if we are the workmanship of God, we will feel most fulfilled and most at peace when we surrender to the potter's hands. Some of you are very naturally gifted, and some of you look at yourselves and you don't think you're naturally gifted at all. Some of you are very crafty, and some of you, whenever you try to paint something or craft something, it looks terrible. Some of you are very naturally skilled at all kinds of things in life or just naturally skilled at one or two things that you're very kind of proud of and others, they can't think of a single thing that they have ever done that worked out precisely the way that they expected it to. But for both groups of people, the calling here is the same. You are supposed to surrender your life to the potter's hand and let his project hands shape and form you. The third part of this the verse in Philippians 1, six, he has begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. How does God do that? How do the potter's hands work? That's an important part of this, right? Okay, I'm God's workmanship. All right. What does that look like? What does that mean for me? If you're telling me I'm not supposed to just constantly get on my hands and knees and ask, God what do I do, God, what do I do, God, what do I do, God, what do I do, then if that's not the answer, how does this whole process unfold, and this is why I asked Casey to read John 17, because I knew we were going to get here, and I wasn't going to have time to read it, but if you were to read John 17, I'll point out to you just a few key verses over and over again, and I'm just going to read them, listen to the theme here, they were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, that's verse 6, This is all in Jesus' prayer there for his disciples. He's praying that God will keep them. That's what Paul's hoping for, that God will be faithful to complete the work until the day of Jesus Christ, that God will keep the Philippians. Here Jesus is praying for his disciples. He knows he's going to the cross. He's praying the exact same thing, keep them. And again, they have kept your word. Verse 8, another one, for I have given to them the words which you have given me. Verse 9, he says, I pray for them. Verse 11, Holy Father, keep them. I've kept them. Now I ask that you keep them. Verse 14, I have given them your word. Verse 15, please keep them. Verse 16, they're not of the world. I'm not of the world. They're not like everybody else in the world. They're supposed to be your craftsmanship and your project. They're not supposed to look like everybody else in the world. Verse 17, sanctify them. Now, the word sanctify means set apart. That's the whole idea here. They're not of the world. They're not looking like the rest of the people in the world. They're your craftsmanship. They're my project. I've given my life to secure them. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Create them to be this project, this craftsmanship that you have for them. By your truth, your word is truth. Your word, your word, your word. Verse 19 again, they must be sanctified by the truth, which he said is your word. How does this look? This, this work of the, the potter takes place as you surrender yourself to the word of God, which means you must be in the word of God. Not you have to be a master of the word of God. You must be in the word of God. God has given you pastors and teachers and people in your life to help you in the word of But make no mistake, the Word is where the transformational power is. The Word. From another passage in Ephesians 5. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her, that He might sanctify, there it is again, set her apart and cleanse her with the washing of water by the Word. It's way too trite. For a lot of people but the power of the potter to transform you is here is here point three the Bible the power of God's word faithfully and continually applied to the Christian's life is what sanctifies a person is what sets them apart is what creates a life that will do the good works that God has predestined beforehand in that person the Bible the Bible the Bible That's not flashy enough for a lot of people these days. Sometimes the Bible is like medicine and it's hard to take. Um, It will ultimately help, but our natural taste is not for medicine. It's for something else. Sometimes the Bible is like a workout that you just don't want to do. And it may be important, but our natural body would rather do something else. Sometimes the Bible is like a checkup with a doctor who just continues to tell you, you should probably eat right and exercise. You should probably eat right and exercise. And after a while, you know that what the doctor's saying is true, but you wish he found a new way to sing that song, because it's getting old to simply hear, eat right and exercise. These mundane difficulties that we have with the Bible, these are all our problems. It's not God's. They are the reluctance of someone who has been chosen by God to change. The reluctance of someone who has been selected by God to have God's craftsmanship applied to their life to grow and to be different. If we can be really honest here, most of us gathered here today don't really want to change. Most of us. Some of us might be bad enough off right now where we know, I would love to change. Any change would be preferable to where I'm at right now, but most of us, eh. Maybe some improvements here or there. But to approach God's Word with a mind to change and to grow and to be different from how I am now under the counsel and instruction of this, that is what opens a person up to being formed and shaped under the hands of God. We approach Bible study and God's Word with so little expectation sometimes, like, hey, I'll come to the Bible study and I hope I find it interesting. You come to the Bible study to find out where it is that you need changed. Knowing what I am today is not ultimately what God would have me be. And so I'm going to sit through this Wednesday night Bible study and I'm going to sit through this prayer meeting and I'm going to go to the Sunday school and I'm going to sit through the sermon and every time I'm going to saturate my life with the Word of God with hope, with faith that God will mold me into what I am supposed to be. You come to God's Word with expectation. Not expectation that you will enjoy it, that it will be captivating. Oh, that I'll learn something new. A good Bible study is not a Bible study where I learn something new. Some folks never evolve past that. There are 66 books. Eventually, you're going to have the gist of it. You go to a Bible study that what is there will be applied so that you will change, not the information. You will change. And sometimes, you know, as God works on the vessel of clay, sometimes there are little weak spots where we don't think there's a problem, but God does. And we hear the message that we need to hear without ever realizing it was a problem because it's strengthened by the clay that was added and reinforced and shaped into the weakness. And the jar never breaks, and things never fall apart. And it was because of the mundane, the strengthening, the adding, the work. There is no higher calling than being a projection of God's greatness in this earth because he has crafted you into being something that you're supposed to be. And that won't happen unless you submit yourself to the work of God's word being faithfully applied to you in the right way over and over and over again because you are stubborn clay. And you do not want to be bent and molded and changed. But I asked Jeffrey this morning how much God has worked in his life over the last year. It's been a painful year for Jeffrey. But God works in painful years. God is faithful. And so you should be faithful to God's word. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word, that it is not a dead book. It's not a set of pages that we rifle through to find a reading. That it stands there always alive. Your spirit always ready to speak. Waiting and calling us to submit ourselves once again to the potter's wheel to be turned and bent and cut and smoothed, to be shaped and crafted and molded into something that will bring you glory in this world. Father, break us down. Thank you for your, your work in our life that softens our hearts. Help us to be faithful to the study of your word.